everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Alana Savin and Emily Galvan Almanza from The Appeal. We're going to be talking about policing. Alana is a senior legal analyst and co-host of Appeal Live. And Emily is a senior legal analyst and also a co-host of Appeal Live. So welcome, both of you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. So it's interesting. Uh, when I first started discussing doing this podcast, we had no idea what the news was going to bring uh, in uh, this week. Um, and so uh, it's kind of interesting, the timing of everything, but kind of wanted to start with uh, the Dante Wright uh, case because it's in the news and everybody's focused on it. Um, so based on what we know, at least so far, what went wrong in this police stop? Oh man, I'll take a crack at that. Um... <laughs> so I think there's two different ways of talking about what went wrong in this police stop. And there's the way that accepts the sort of common conventions of the carceral state. And there's the way that talks about how we can do this better. So, I mean, a lot of things went wrong in this police stop in terms of the way Dante and the way pretty much all black and brown Americans are treated by police, treated as if they are inherently dangerous, treated with fear and suspicion um, and lethality um, and incompetence. I think, you know, all of that is really obvious from even the most conservative version of this media narrative. But the bigger picture of what went wrong is that we are living in a world where police have been demonstrably deadly to black and brown people in America for decades, if not centuries. Um, and we still put police into circumstances where they have contact with black and brown people on a daily basis over things like having an air freshener around your mirror. I mean, I don't want to speak as a white woman. I don't want to speak for black and brown people, but I will say that certainly it has been my impression that it is fundamentally terrifying to go through life this way. Um, and so I would say that what went wrong is that we let police conduct this kind of contact at all. And we accept the loss of life that stems from it. Alana, did you want to jump in there? Completely agree. I mean, I think the problem with the stop is that it happened at all. And that it happened 
by a police force that came to this person's window with a badge and a gun that came to Dante's right, Dante Wright's window with a badge and a gun prepared to be able to take it out if they needed to. Um, and I think it, it sort of goes right into the polling that we're going to discuss, which is that there are so many things that the police do that don't, they don't need to be doing. And in fact, when they do it, they cause more harm than good. Um, so I think that's ultimately the biggest problem out there that occurred in the stop, that it happened at all and that it occurred with a violent police force. Yeah, it was interesting. After this came out, I walked out to my car and there's my air freshener hanging from my rear view mirror. And it was only, I think, two weeks ago that I uh, discovered that my license uh, uh, had been expired for a year uh, mm -hmm. because in the pandemic, uh, everything kind of got all muddled. And I, uh, the officer had pulled me over for speeding and said, hey, did you know that your license is expired? I'm like, no, I paid for that. And uh, then I checked with my wife and, oh, I guess we hadn't paid for that, uh, better fix that. But, uh, you know, it, at, as a white man, you know, at no point did I think, oh, uh, this is going to be an encounter that's going to threaten my life. And I think, you know, that's, that's really a huge difference between, uh, you know, a white person in that uh, situation and somebody like uh, Dante. You know, it's interesting to think about, like, um, I'm, I'm, if, Everything is horrible. And the way in which, I mean, watching the stop of the military officer that also came out just before Dante's death, you know, drilled home for me again, again, inevitably, um, just how much fear there is, right, in driving while black. But I think something that I found really powerful in recent years is like, obviously, I've watched this happen a lot because I was a public defender for the better part of a decade and like represented so many people who were harmed by police because of window tint or a cracked taillight or the wrong tint on their taillight or an air freshener or like any of these bajillion reasons police can use to pull someone over. But so there's a lot of folks in the white community who are not, who have not been familiarized with what black and brown people are actually experiencing every day. And after Dante's death, my mother called me and she said, is, you know, my, my husband is not white. And she asked me if he was going to drive to the airport to pick up my dad who's coming to visit tomorrow. And I said, yeah, he's going to drive over and get my dad. And she said, could, could he not? Could you go instead? And my mom, who's never been, this is not her field. She's a poet. <laughs> she's, she's a pretty woke poet, but like, you know, this is not her thing. The fact that we're reaching a level of cultural saturation with this information, that my older mom is calling me and asking my husband not to drive. Like, it's not good. Nothing is fixed. Everything is really bad. But at least we're now all talking about bigger, more exciting, more innovative ideas of what we can do because there's becoming a baseline familiarity with how absolutely bad it is. So I think that's a good segue into kind of some of this uh, polling. Um, so it's interesting, um, you know, last week, uh, again, before any of this happened uh, in the community I live in, uh, we were having 
uh, a discussion on policing and uh, data had come out uh, that blacks in this little college town that I live in, uh, Davis, uh, 15 miles from Sacramento, um, were six times more likely than whites to be stopped by police. And then uh, last month, uh, Berkeley banned police stops that involved non-safety related, non-moving violations. And Nashville, um, you know, just to pull it further out, uh, just did this survey and they found huge disparities uh, between blacks and whites for non-moving violations. So, you know, one of the questions is, you know, is the public uh, willing to support something uh, like the Berkeley model where, where the police are kind of prevented from making these kinds of stops uh, when it's not safety related? You know, if they're speeding, you can pull them over. Uh, you know, if they have a taillight out, you can send them a fix-it ticket in the mail. I mean, I think so. I think people will be supportive of that. Um, you know, I think this poll has shown that people are open to the idea of taking police officers out of traffic enforcement. The idea being that, again, police officers aren't useful for this and that there are other models like the Berkeley model um, that has been proposed and also models in other countries as well that we've seen um, sort of, for example, like automated uh, sort of like camera surveillance of different uh, traffic enforcement of, of different traffic violations. Um, so I do think this is something that people will be supportive. And I think it's something that especially we've seen the harm that traffic enforcement has caused when it's done by police. I mean, we've talked about a bunch of different stats, but we've also, it's also important to note that 135 unarmed black men or people who were shot by police as investigated by NPR, about a quarter of those killings occurred during traffic stops. Um, and so I think the more visible these stops become and the more that people are awakening to the fact that they cause more harm than good, the more public support will go behind them in different places around the country should really be looking into seeing how we can take police out of traffic enforcement. And, and they are too, right? Like I think one of the, it, it's awesome that we have polling showing majority support for pretty much all of these reallocations of, of police power, but also just watching it spread in non-contiguous geographies is really, really cool. So it's happening in Berkeley. It's also being discussed in Texas. It's being discussed in Maryland. It's being discussed in Hawaii. I mean, I think that watching different geographies with really different cultures and different local concerns sort of simultaneously explore. And this is, by the way, those states I listed are just about non-unarmed civilian traffic enforcement. The list of states who are exploring different versions of non-police first responders is much, much bigger. So yes, there's a vote of confidence of the actual like voters surveyed, but there's also the vote of confidence of these local legislators across geographies who are not just exploring these changes, but implementing them in really exciting ways. So one of the interesting things that we saw over the summer was that the public doesn't like kind of the idea at least, or at least the name, defund the police. But when you start breaking out some of the component parts, uh, you find pretty much universal support for some of them. Um, can you speak to that? So, <laughs> so first I'll address 
so I think there are two arguments sort of within that question. The first is the sort of the implicit argument that, that has been very explicit that everybody says, which is the left should change, should change the phrasing of defund the police, um, which I'll respond to in a second. And then sort of the second is that defunding the police doesn't make sense. And so I'll address the first one first. Uh, I, I think it's important to note that when the arguments that people turn to against defunding the police, the first one they'll go to is safety. You know, I'm not going to feel safe. What if somebody tries to kill me, et cetera? What's going to happen with violent crime? Violent crime makes up about 4% of police departments' day-to-day -day duties. And by the way, they're not very good at solving it. <laughs> you know, we've seen in jurisdictions around the country that homicide clearance rates are pretty low. Um, and my guess is that a part of the reason why is because they're so focused on all of these other things that they are even worse at and bring more violence to. So defunding the police means taking all of those things away from the police department. And so, and then talk, and then so probably the counter argument is like, okay, why not say shrink the police or something like that, which I've heard a lot. My, my dad likes to bring this to me all the time. Um, and I think the argument to that is that, you know, this is a term that was developed by organizers for an important reason. And I think that reason is that for so many black and brown communities, police have never been a force of safety. Um, if you are somebody who is black or brown and you call the police when you are in a situation where there is violence present, you will be in as much fear of the police that comes to your door as you are from the violent situation itself. And so the phrasing of defunding the police is sort of a recognition of the fact that police have always caused violence and that to defund them means to defund the violence that has plagued our communities for so long. So I think I think there's an additional point too that's really, really urgent. I mean, I, I as always, I agree with everything Alana said. <laughs> um, but but there's this really urgent point, right? Which is like, what is the appropriate pot of money for communities to draw from when we talk about alternatives? And I think what's really kind of a, a big risk here is like, let's take mental health first responders as a category, right? Um, we know that a full quarter of people, I think it's a full quarter of people who are killed by police are experiencing a mental health crisis at the time. Um, that makes these encounters remarkably dangerous to the people who police are supposed to protect and the people who, let's be real, like local governments, governments are supposed to protect. Um, who is better to do that? Well, mental health professionals are better to do that. Any form of non-police is probably better, but trained specialists are great. Civilians are great. Civilians are great at de-escalating. People respond really well to their neighbors because they are not, they don't see their neighbors as a threat or a danger. However, when it comes time to actually build out these programs, they have to be dispatched by 911. That makes them kind of police adjacent. Uh, but it's very tempting for geographies to try to take funding from the mental health pot right, from funding that is allocated toward mental health services. Oh, this is another mental health service. So we're going to take money away from our existing mental health services and put it into this. Well, we can't afford to lose funding for those services. We can afford to reallocate police funding. And actually, since this is a job that police would no longer be doing and other professionals would be picking up, it makes the most sense to defund that chunk of the police. And I think what's important is keeping the focus on not stripping vital funding and resources away from other pro-safety programs and pro-safety alternatives and like upstream things that create more safety than police do. Great 
Early childhood education creates more safety than police do. Mental health programs create more safety than police do. Jobs create more safety than police do. Housing creates more safety than police do. Like there's all, I mean, being very tactical, community violence interruption creates more safety than police do. So I think in order to support a smarter allocation of resources and not defund the things that matter more, one must keep the focus on police funding. Now, it's interesting, um, literally right before I came on with you guys, I was on a press conference uh, out of uh, a suburb of San Francisco and John Burris, the uh, eminent uh, civil rights attorney um, is suing that city um, because of the exact uh, situation. Uh, this woman uh, called uh, 911 for her husband who was having a mental health breakdown and he ends up being shot and killed. Um, now, one of the interesting things that they're uh, talking about doing is creating this 988 uh, number where instead of calling 911 for mental health, you call 988 so that you uh, you don't even uh, commingle uh, the call. Uh, have you guys heard of that? Is this the macro program in Oakland? Um, yeah, well, this is Redwood City. So that's oh, like City. South San Francisco area. But uh, yeah, I think they're all similar. I know it well. I used to live in San Jose um, and I would go to the movies in Redwood City all the time because they have that really nice multiplex. Um, but um, and I actually went on a ride along in Redwood City, too. Um, but um, I think there's a really interesting lesson to be learned from the exploration of Oakland's macro program. Um, and also Mental Health First, which is started by the Anti-Police Terror Project and is a very community grassroots organized alternate mental health responder corps. And both are super valuable. Um, but I think a lot of the programs around the country that are exploring this are coming to the conclusion that when people are panicking, it's really hard for them to remember another number. Um, and that decoupling policing from 911 dispatch and making 911 more of a public safety hub is really, really valuable for many reasons, including dislocating police as the default first responder for every type of problem from barking dog to a mental health crisis, to a shooting, to elder care. I mean, it's, it's absurd how much 911 is asked to dispatch police for. So I, I um, I think there's certainly a, a really intense conversation to be had there about um, user, user feasibility. Um, that being said, I think anything is better than using police as a default for everything. So if people need to learn another number, I hope they're going to do great comms on that. I think I do want to jump in and just sort of go on like a slight tangent, which is that I think one thing that we've both learned from looking at those programs is that the most valuable part of them is that they're folks within the community. Um, so it's a lot of peer navigators. It's people who not only have sort of like larger, you know, social services expertise, degrees in social work, but also just like people who have experienced mental health crises themselves or people who have been through the system. And I think that's really important in, in, in alternative models that come about because when we have sort of a new system that's largely developed by government, it, I think there's a risk of running, there's a, there's a risk of creating something that just has a different name, but is the same in function, so. So uh, does one of you wanna kind of go through an overview of what 
uh, the poll by data for progress found? Alana, I'm nominating you. I'll do it if you want me to. We used to do a show together and we always joke, <laughs> poll time, it's our poll time. Oh, poll time, yeah, I know, but then we would have like a nice little graphic of the poll there too, which would make it more fun. So I will try to make it fun with you my- You always make it fun, darling. You always yeah. make it fun. Oh, thank you, my love. Okay, so, um, so this was a national poll from Data for Progress in the Lab, which is a policy vertical of the appeal. And it showed overwhelming support among likely voters for creating non-police emergency first responders to handle emergency calls, specifically emergency calls that involved mental health issues, substance use disorders, health and safety checks, and people who are experiencing homelessness. And it showed support to reallocate law enforcement funding in order to do so. So some of the results from it, 65% of voters uh, of likely voters support reallocating some of law enforcement budgets to support such non-police responder programs. And this includes 80% of Democrats, 52% of Republicans, and 60% of independent or third party voters. Um, and it also showed, and this is really important, and I would imagine that this number could maybe even increase uh, given, given everything that we're seeing right now, 51% of likely voters support moving most traffic enforcement to non-police agencies and 68% support the creation of a non-police emergency first responder program. 71% of likely voters believe that programs designed to interrupt and prevent gun violence have been shown to be more cost effective than increasing the number of police in a community. And 67% of likely voters support the Community-Based Emergency Response Act, which is an act, an act introduced by Maryland Senator, uh, which, would, which would provide grants worth $100 million to fund community-based emergency and non-emergency response through local government and community organizations. So we can talk through some of the parts of that. Um, I think probably something that's really interesting to discuss. And I think something that you sort of hinted at a little bit earlier is that this surprisingly has a decent amount of support from Republicans. Uh, you know, that number there, which is 52% and then 60% of independent or third party voters who are in support of it as well. And I think because it's it's pretty common sense, it's a, it's a very common sense idea, which is that send the specialists to do the specialists work. You know, like if, if there's a mental health crisis, a mental health specialist should respond to it. Um, there's a traffic crisis. A traffic responder should is probably the best person, not somebody. Maybe who's, a robot. A robot could do that. <laughs> a robot could do that, and it's cheaper. So, uh, building, building off just for a second something you mentioned, Alana, that I, I just kind of wanted to throw in here, and also, you know, when we look at police clearance rates, which Alana mentioned earlier, you know, the rate at which police are closing serious cases, homicide cases, sexual assault cases, the kind of harm that I think no matter where you stand politically, like we all agree is the most serious harm and the stuff we're most afraid of happening to someone we love, um, their clearance rates are really low. Like they're not doing a good job solving the major crimes and they're not doing a good job um, closing the major cases. So when Alana says send the specialists to do what you need the specialists for, free up police to focus on improving those clearance rates on the stuff people are really scared of and stop using police in ways that are actually causing more death and trauma and harm um, than anything else. So let's drill down onto a, a few things and Alana already uh, hinted at one of the things that 
uh, jumped out at me. Um, you know, 52% of Republican support. So the good news is uh, even among the more conservative uh, population, there is a small majority, but a majority support for. Um, and, and that seems uh, pretty important uh, uh, moving forward. Do you agree on that? Oh, you can't see me nod. I'm nodding. <laughs> Absolutely. I think yeah. Oregon is actually a great example of that because Oregon, I think we all think of the hippies in Portland and their fabulous food and coffee. Um, but we neglect to remember like how much of Oregon is like kind of deep red ranching country. Mm. Um, and the fact that 81% of Oregon voters support expanding the CAHOOTS program, which is an alternate first responder program statewide, is really significant. It shows us that this is an idea that resonates really across the full ideological spectrum when people are experiencing it in their own state. Yeah, and Emily, you know, you raised the point about the closing rates. You know, my impression overall, and I've been watching, you know, police officers testify in court for 15 years, as I assume you have. And, you know, when you watch them in court, you realize how dumb, sorry, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, some of these guys have absolutely no education. They, uh, they don't understand what the law uh, is. They don't understand basic concepts like probable cause, reasonable suspicion. And, and, you know, we're asking them to do things that they're not even trained to do when they're not even doing a great job at the things that they are trained to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to to cast aspersions on on an entire profession. Like, I'm sure there's like amazing, brilliant, you know, people who became cops because they want to save lives. And I, I know that's real. I admit I have been similarly unimpressed with those who have been cross-examined by me. But, you know, I'm a tough cross-examiner. So maybe I wind up unimpressed with pretty much everybody who gets cross-examined by me. But I would say that, um, you know, Derek Chauvin was a training officer. Like, let's reflect on that for a minute. Um, no matter how much you might want to do good in that job, um, none of the training that is out there is stopping people from doing harm. I think when we reflect on who's giving that training and it's cops like Derek Chauvin, like that's not a good sign of how, how effective the training is. But you know, uh, the Brooklyn Center Police who are now at the center of this killing were held up as a model of police reform uh, dating back to reforms they implemented in 2005. So I think that no matter how much you try to implement police-specific training and education, um, you're right that it's not necessarily fair to ask non-lawyers to make quick legal decisions and determine what is and is not legal on the fly. But it's also not fair for us as a society to continue insisting that the training works and the reform works and the chokehold bans will work and the tasers will work when none of it works and people are getting murdered every day. I mean, that's, I think the real failure is on us as a people who have not yet abandoned this idea that police are somehow creating safety. Hmm. Did you wanna jump in, Alana? Yeah, and I think especially now when we've seen how this past year, after the reckoning on racial injustice in this country, we saw legislatures start to change and start to make these sorts of reform type changes and continually say, mm, we're not so sure about reducing budgets. And here we are a year later, 
with the same tragedy happening, the same police killing, um, and and also, by the way, the same response to protesting people who are grieving the murder of Dante Wright right now. And this it, we're experiencing like deja vu as a society. And it's sort of at the point where we have to recognize that we've tried all of the things. And so there's only one thing left to do, and that's to just shift all this stuff away from police departments. And on the mental health part, you know, when I talk to police officers, it's the one area where I generally agree with them uh, because they kind of understand that they're not trained uh, to handle a lot of those situations. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, unfortunately, um, last year, our 17-year-old was having uh, all sorts of mental health crises, and we ended up having to uh, call 911 for lack of any better option. And he's mixed race and, uh, you know, part black. And, uh, you know, I was always extraordinarily nervous um, about calling the police in. And, you know, to the police's credit, you know, they, they uh, came in and they were compassionate and kind and didn't do anything inappropriate. But at the same time, um, other than be able to throw cuffs on and, you know, 5150 him, uh, they weren't able to do anything. You know, they didn't have any particular skills to be talking to somebody with a mental health crisis. Um, you know, it would have been much better if we had been able to get some kind of uh, expert or, you know, a counselor or, or somebody uh, with, with training to be able to deal with that. A lot of police but, officers like these programs. Like I, you know, we, a lot of times on the Appeal Live, we interview different folks who are involved in different program, EFR programs across the country. And I remember speaking with some folks in Anchorage who said, yeah, police are on board. They're all for it. They didn't go to police, the police academy to deal with mental health issues. They wanted to, you know, do the cop stuff. Yeah, it seems like, you know, police departments are on board with that. You agree, Emily? Oh, absolutely. And I, I there's actually there's an amazing graphic that I was looking at recently that I think I, I also just sent Alana um, of like what police actually do. Because like, let's be real, when you sign up to be a police officer, you have in your head some sort of like Dick Wolf TV drama where you're like in a high speed chase and you're catching a bad guy and pulling a baby out of a bad situation. I don't know. Heroism. People think of heroism and excitement. Um, and then when you look at what like most, most police work, the heroism and excitement part is a teeny tiny little bit of that pie. The huge part of the pie is like noise complaints, public urination, uh, small time disputes, scuffles, domestics and kids stuff. Um, all of this stuff where we do not need to interject with the fear of lethal force. Stuff that can be like much better handled, not just by a mental health. I mean, mental health is a very specific case, but like a lot of, think about kid stuff, right? When you were in school, um, David, were there, were there cops in your school growing up? Nope. Okay. Me neither. Um, Cause I grew up white in Iowa. Yeah, exactly. Um, when somebody had a small time dispute and some of these disputes were pretty, I mean, we had a knife fight in my school commons between a bunch of hicks. I mean, this, this thing's got real in Iowa. 
Um, and we didn't have cops in schools. We had school counselors and school resource people, not officers, um, who were able to act like counselors and big brothers and big sisters and talk kids down and call their mom and send someone to detention. And kids weren't getting felonies. And now suddenly we're asking cops to be school counselors. We're asking them to be mental health professionals. We're asking them to be like, you know, community pillars who can resolve any dispute among a bunch of people with whom they do not live and whom they do not know. Um, we're asking them to deal with people who are mad over barking dogs and where their property line is and what their neighbor did. And this is not what they signed up for and it's not safe. And no, I don't think most police want to be doing this stuff. So I, I would bet that police, they don't wanna to lose tools like traffic enforcement. That's a separate argument, right? You and I both know, Alana is a former public defender, we all know um, that police use things like traffic stops as an excuse mm -hmm. to harass and search and stalk and track black and brown people. Um, so they don't wanna lose what they see as a tool. I think they do want to lose the stuff that's not the fun part of the job. They don't want to lose something they see as a tool. But I think we also have to be strong as a community and say, this particular tool has cost a lot of lives now. And you don't get to use a tool when so many people have died for you to be able to harass them. Yeah, and I think your point is good because, you know, where I see the fight and I see you know, kind of two schools of thought. One is, um, you know, kind of do the Berkeley model and uh, and prevent police from being able to do those types of stops. I've also seen kind of the more extreme push, which is don't have armed police officers doing traffic stops. Even I'm a little more sketchy on that one uh, because I think traffic stops are dangerous, uh, especially if you don't know who you're dealing with. So. I'm I'm more reluctant to go there. I'm 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 much more supportive of the idea of, you know, if somebody just has an expired uh, tag, you don't need to pull them over, and you definitely don't need to be searching. I mean, you know, the leverage that they use here is, is unbelievable because they pull them over, they find out somebody is is on probation or on uh, parole, then then you search their car. And, and and you're basically springboarding, uh, you know, this basic traffic stop into this whole search and seizure case. Um, and most of the time they don't find anything. So you're basically harassing innocent people and not accomplishing anything other than pissing them off. And I absolutely. And I think also, I mean, to the to the deepest and most tragic extreme, they result in death traffic stops. But then the accumulation of traffic stops can also really derail people's lives. And we see it doing that, right? Like you get stopped for a ticket, which by the way, you're more likely to get stopped for a ticket if you're black. Um, you have to pay off that ticket. And if you don't pay off that ticket and you get stopped again, because you're more likely to get stopped, your license is eventually suspended. And in a lot of states, once your license is suspended and you drive without a suspended with a suspended license, you could end up being arrested and then you get arrested and then your whole life is derailed even more and you lose your job. And it's this whole cycle um, that just further serves again to harm the most marginalized people in this country. And I think, again, this just sort of goes back to the idea that 
this is what police have done, right? Like, and I understand that there's this idea that, you know, and which is one that I think we both reject that, that, that we need to have police stopping people. Um, but I think putting aside the extreme of, you know, because it kills people, which that is what happens, but even just this sort of gradual deterioration of lives that it causes, when instead we should be investing that money into making sure that people can live their lives, can be economically stable, can have all the access to all of the sorts of things that create stability, like good housing, healthcare, early education, access to the arts, um, is a better use of our government resources. That's that's my and a lot of just like by the number. So I completely agree. And the cycle of it's only black people who are getting you know, pulled into this cycle of constant stops, constant, you know, search, constant harassment, and then constant criminalization and derailing education, employment, like shattering people's futures. Here's what I have to say. I, I would like to live in a country where we didn't have a relationship with guns that killed so many people. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to not have anybody getting shot. Mm. But when we take a real hard look at the numbers, take 2019, for example. In 2019, I believe police officers killed 999 people. And when you look at the number of police officers who were killed during what I, I believe is termed, I think they termed it like a felonious encounter, but you know, killed in, in the course of intervening in crime, including traffic stops, it was 48 people. And only, um, I think, something on the order of 14 or 15 were at traffic stops. When you consider the 999 people who were killed by police, like, uh, again, I support police being able to be safe on the job. I'm completely for that. But I don't think that we can prioritize a low risk to a police officer over what is a more substantial risk to a civilian from that police officer. Interesting point. All right. Um, so, um, oh, uh, last question. Um, so I think you guys said on the polling, it was like 51% are supportive of kind of shifting away from traffic enforcement. Um, does the Dante Wright uh incident with all the publicity now around the expired tags and the air fresheners does that start to shift things i would hope so um but i also think i mean we saw philando castile as well and i hope that i i think people are giving are, are paying more attention now so i hope that that would shift things maybe we should do another poll what do you we think should do another poll i mean i think that People also have to see a vision of what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. People have to, to know what it would feel like. It's, I think traffic cameras are actually a really great um, example, as annoying as they are. Everybody has experienced a traffic camera and getting a ticket in the mail. And I think everyone can agree that an air freshener around the rear view mirror is like pretty small potatoes on the scale of traffic violations. The conversation is, of course, you know, more complicated around something like a high-speed chase, or like a very, you know, serious driving while like there's there's other categories. But when we're just talking about these little ticket offenses, I think the more the conversation does not just highlight the horrifying loss of a father and a son and a loved one, and the grief that people are feeling right now about about Dante Wright, 
but it has to also highlight the possibility, right? What if you could live in a world where you didn't get pulled over by cops, you just got a ticket in the mail? You know, what if we could save a lot of money doing that? What if we could put that money towards things you really care about, like your kids' education and arts programs, as Alana mentioned? I think giving people a vision of what could be is just as important as showing them how horrifying things are. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's an underrated point because, um, you know, 10 years ago at, at UC Davis, there was a police uh, incident where uh, that was very infamous uh, where the officers pepper sprayed uh, student protesters. And what the university did after that for handling protests was they no longer attempted to arrest people. Instead, what they did was they identified them and sent them uh, uh, citations in the mail and, you know, or court summons to appear. And all of a sudden it just completely took away um, you know, the, this humongous confrontation between the protesters and, and the police, and it pretty much uh, ended the problem because they figured out, oh, we don't need to arrest these people because they're not actually dangerous right now. And a lot of these traffic stops, you know, the, the cops can, you know, document your license a uh, plate being expired and uh, send you a fix-it ticket in the mail just as easily as they can pull you over. They have the perfect technology to do it. Uh, and it's safer for them and it's safer for the community. It, it, it yeah. just seems like a no-brainer. And they they fought this for so long because, uh, you know, it takes away their tool of being able to pull over people of color and search their cars. From your lips to the ears of 49% of Americans. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, closing thoughts. Hmm. You know, Alana, you want me to try to take a crack at this and then you can really close us out? Sure, sure. <laughs> um, I think that point that you just made is, is important really far beyond policing. And I kind of want to expand this out because acknowledging the horror of what we have and exploring ideas that are more inventive, more creative and better, more rooted in what experts tell us actually works to end cycles of harm. That goes really far beyond policing, right? Like that goes to prison, that goes to the way we engage with sentencing in this country, that goes to jailing, that goes to pretrial detention, that goes to school policing and the school to prison pipeline, like that goes to all levels of our carceral system. And the day we stop pretending like the experiment of a hypercarceral state has worked is the day we start moving toward a better future. I mean, if, if policing in prisons the way we do it as the world's biggest jailer worked, we would be the safest country in the world. We would be amazingly safe. It would be unbelievable. Um, but the way we do it doesn't work. And we're doing it at this point out of habit and racism and fear. In most other fields outside of criminal justice, we make decisions based on evidence rather than habit and racism and fear. <laughs> and the sooner we start thinking critically and logically about new ideas and creatively, the better off we're gonna be and the better off our kids are gonna be. So I think we, this conversation deserves carrying forth into all, all other areas of subject matter. I'll just add one small thing to that, which is that I think, 
I think it's more than just making decisions on the basis of fear and racism. I think there's also, I think the system itself is designed to, actually I know the system itself is designed to oppress black and brown people. It's been that way from the start, the ramping up of it during the war on drugs has been systematically designed to oppress black and brown people in this country. And I think we really need to come to grips with that um, before we're able to move forward to a better system. And also one that really centers how, uh, centers those communities when creating these EFR programs and when designing a better model of public safety. Because if we don't do that again, we just stand at risk of replicating all of the same racial inequities that exist in our system right now. Well, I want to thank you guys both for coming on the show. This thanks for having great. us. Yeah, thanks. This is this was great. This has been everyday injustice, you know, having been part of this for 15 years now. It's amazing to see how far we've come since 2005, 2006, when I first started. And the idea of things like body-worn cameras was, was a threat to police officers. And now we're, we're finally having real discussions about the possibility of shifting huge uh, uh, operations away from the police and toward uh, mental health professionals. And now we may actually get a conversation going where we can deal with these traffic stops, which have been the source of so much problem, you know, years and years of allegations of racial profiling and denial. We can put an end to that, uh, which uh, didn't even seem possible even a few years ago. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an interesting time. Unfortunately, these changes come from horrible tragedies, uh, but unfortunately, that's what pushes us forward, uh, it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, so thanks for coming on the show and uh, join us again next time for more Tales from the Injustice System. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.